0: Uh, So if you could, open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, And while you're doing that, I want to talk to you a little bit about standards for inclusion. So uh, societies and cultures, they have different standards, different uh, different things that they identify that you kind of have to, to fall in line with in order to be included. This happens. uh, This is just a nature of whenever people get together, they have to draw lines about who's in and who's out. This is just kind of how things work. And so uh, so there are some like arbitrary categories that our culture has defined. So let's talk about one. Let's talk about successful. There's an arbitrary category of success, be it right or wrong. um, Our culture has defined successful by a few sort of basic standards, uh, one of them might be like, do you have a career and it is a career where you are progressing some on some sort of upward ladder? Are you are you upwardly mobile in your career? Uh, another uh, standard of success might be like, are you a homeowner? Um, these are kind of these are all like interesting things that our society chooses to say. If you if you can check off these boxes, then you can consider yourself to be in the category of. Successful, and so uh, so that's like that's one thing. Like these are the these are the important factors for success. Now, I, like that's not we don't follow the culture standard for success. Like that's not how we define success as a church even. But that's just what the culture has defined as successful. That's what they say is important. Um, so then let's go. So that's more that's more arbitrary. That uh, there's another category that is like pretty well defined. So let's like talk about the trades for example. Um, there, are, there are well-defined categories of how you actually progress towards greater levels of inclusion in the trades, like plumbing, for example. Like, you don't start as uh, as a, a master plumber, like I cannot call myself a master plumber because i haven 't actually checked there are very well defined boxes that i 'm required to check in order for me to consider myself a master plumber i couldn 't even consider myself an apprentice plumber because i i, I don 't plumb like that 's not what 's going on and so so uh, so that the, those are the sort of categories that we have to to think about, and they're very well-defined, very clear as to what is required to progress through these trades. So I want to talk to you about then uh, a group that I've been a part of, that I've been able to progress towards sort of greater levels of inclusion. So so I sing barbershop music. And this is, uh, yes, right. Thank you, Debbie. Debbie says, cool. Dave says, boo. He says, that's not good. But, uh, but this is something that I do, something that I enjoy. And so I sing in this chorus. And uh, it's so chorus singing is like the first level of inclusion in my, my barbershop world. And then as you progress, like I actually got into quartet singing. So that's like, that's like the next level of inclusion. Like people who, have, like, who are able to develop their skill a little bit, they work a little bit harder, they check the box for quartet singing. But then there's something. This is so embarrassing. Okay, so then there's something called extreme quartetting, <laughs> which is hilarious, I know. But then, like, that's like another, another box of inclusion for, for the barbershop singer. And then, uh, as a part of my chorus, like, once I had, uh, had worked my way through those levels of inclusion, I actually got to a point where I was, uh, I was a part of something in my chorus called the music team. And this is, like, the greatest level of inclusion that you could, you could be in in my chorus because this is, like, this is like where the, the decisions are made. This is, like, the in-crowd of the chorus. And so I, get to, I got to, like, progress through all of those levels of inclusion. Now, I want to talk to you about, um, about something, like, groups that I've wanted to be a part of but I couldn't be a part of. So when I was in, in high school... There was this uh, this leadership uh, group. There was leadership training in high school, and and as I, I as I had gone through school, I always got to be a part of these like leadership things. It was really a cool opportunity, and so so I got to watch the upperclassmen be a part of this. There was like a group of six six people in every class that got to be a part of this leadership training, and so because I had always been a part of these things before, I just assumed that it was. Naturally, going to happen, and so uh, so I get uh, get to the grade where you actually get to be a part of these leadership trainings, and then then it never happened. I, I watched some of my friends who were in my class go and be a part of it, but I didn't actually get to be a part of that group uh, because what was important for that that standard of inclusion was that the people in the in the class above you actually had to like pick you to be in that group, and I didn't get to be hand for some reason. I didn't get to, like, match that standard of inclusion. So there's another, like, category. I would love to be a mechanic. But let me tell you right now, I don't even have the first box checked on what it requires to be a mechanic. I, I can't, like, open up a hood of a car and tell you how everything works. And, and that's one of those things where you advance from, like, apprentice to journeyman to master. Like, you have to check a lot of boxes to be a really good mechanic, Right? I'm not there. I haven't even like started to check those boxes because I studied theology. So like that that makes being a mechanic really really challenging. And so this happens with religion too. Um, so there, uh, I grew up in uh, in Warsaw, Illinois, which is uh, 15 minutes from a place called Nauvoo, and Nauvoo is like. The, the Mormon version, it, it's to Mormons what Mecca is to Muslims. Like, it's this, it's this place of pilgrimage. It's this place that all Mormons eventually go to at some point in their lives. Because Joseph Smith lived here and did, uh, did a lot of his work in this place. And so uh, I had a lot of Mormon friends, even when I was in school. I got to know Mormons really, really well. And what's important in Mormonism is perfection. Like so so there are actually identified levels that, that God like when he looks down on every single Mormon, he has like are seven different levels that you can progress through as a Mormon, and they're all based on your particular level of perfection, how close you can get to being perfect. And so God like God sees every individual in that space and, and the the further you are along, the more perfect you are, the greater level of inclusion you have in the Mormon religion. Uh, so there, there are certain mainline denominations that do this, um, even, even some Catholic denominations. So what's important for some of these, these folks is that what's important is that you are baptized and that you are confirmed. Like Those are the most important categories, which is really, really interesting because then you have a bunch of people, a bunch of kids going to church until they're 13 years old to get confirmed, and then once they get confirmed, they never go to church again. Like that's, like, that's just the category. Because you checked your box, you were baptized, and you were confirmed, and now it's taken care of. Uh, there were even uh, some fundamentalist Baptist traditions that had sort of boxes for uh, what inclusion looks like. Like, what's important is that you don't do X, Y, or Z thing. Like, you're identified by the things that you don't do. So, uh, so I've been waiting a long time to use this in a sermon, but... Uh, this is, uh, there's this phrase that has gone around that to identify these groups as a, we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't date girls who do. Um, that, that was, I've been, I, you have no idea. Like, I've, I've preached probably 50 sermons, and I've been waiting for an opportunity to use that. So, so there we go. Um, but uh, but the, the, what they identify is there are these things that, that maybe, that, that we probably shouldn't do, um, and so that's how, we, that's how we know that we're in, is that we've checked all of those boxes on things that we don't do. And this conversation is important because, picking up where we left off uh, a few weeks ago now, Paul referenced this, uh, this Jewish party, they're called the Circumcision Party, and what they're all about is uh, that they insisted that what's important is that you follow all of the Jewish laws and regulations for For food, for action, all of this stuff. And on the surface, it seemed like what they were talking about is inclusion. Like this is what it means to be included. If you can do X, Y, or Z thing, if you can take care of this, then you'll have uh, some sort of deeper level of of inclusion. But then Paul actually looks below the surface of what they're talking about. And he says that, that what they're actually discussing has implications for salvation. Because what they're saying is that there is a certain people of God... That if you don't do certain things, then you can't be considered a part of that people of God, which Paul knows has implications for their salvation. So Paul, he, he, he's continuing on with this concept about talking about these, these groups of people who have suggested that there's some, some deeper level of inclusion beyond simply knowing Jesus. And so I want to put an image up here on the screen. And this image is, uh, we have like this fuzzy line of faith that is trusting in Jesus. So these people thought, okay, yeah, sure, you've trusted in Jesus, but what you need to know is that there is a, a clearly identified boundary around true faith. So yeah, maybe you've trusted in Jesus, but you, but you have to cross this clearly identified boundary, whatever it may be, in order to get to true faith. That's what these people suggested. And so for for this Jewish party, it was, well, you have to follow these these food regulations. You have to do all of these things. That's what true faith looks like. And so this morning, um, I think Paul, what he's doing is he's looking at these groups, and he's asking the question, what do they think is really important for true faith? What's really important for, quote, true faith? So uh, the first group that he looks at, because he does look at a couple of different groups in this instance, the first one that he looks at, he asks a question, is it my outward religious activity? So verse 16, Colossians two sixteen, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon. Or Sabbath. So he says, pass judgment. He says, don't let anybody make determinations or come to conclusions about you. Don't let anyone pass judgment. And then he provides a list. So uh, just as a bit of a review, there's this group called the Judaizers. And this is how they make decisions about who is included. They say, they ask questions like, what do you eat or drink? And when do you eat or drink it? do you celebrate the Jewish festivals? Do you um, do you recognize every single Jewish holiday? Do you follow the Sabbath regulations, um, all six hundred and fourteen of them? Like, do you do you make sure that you do all of these things? Because Paul Paul says there are going to be people who are going to try to determine the certainty of your faith based on whether or not you do these things, based based on whether or not you follow these regulations, and so. Uh, He goes on in verse 17, and he says, These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he's like, what they're doing, all of this Jewish activity, it actually pointed to something. It had a purpose. That's why it even exists in the Old Testament. Its purpose was to ultimately point to Christ. But Paul's saying, why would you still play with shadows when the real thing is right in front of you? Why would you spend your time with this stuff? So uh, I had a friend uh, when I... um, when I was getting done with college, finishing up with college, I, I did an internship at a church. Um, but uh, I, I would eat breakfast every day in the same restaurant. And I, I had a friend who would come and eat breakfast with me. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. And so Seventh-day Adventists, if you don't know, they, they, they recognize that the, the day of worship, the day of the Lord, is actually on Saturday, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. So they recognize the Jewish Sabbath. And what they say is like, this is the day for Christian worship. This is the day that Christians must worship. And so I had a fun time with my Seventh-day Adventist friend talking about these requirements. He also, he also had a very strict food regulations that he insisted every Christian should, should put in place in their life. These were the sort of things that he, he did. And there was not a day that went by that he didn't remind me that, that I actually wasn't a part of the true faith. I was almost there, like I had most of it, but I I wasn't really in, I wasn't really included. Um, In fact, he even went so far as to insist that the church where I worshiped at on Sunday morning was not a real church because we worshiped on Sunday morning. Like that was problematic for him. And so, uh, so he confirmed his faith and the faith of other people by whether or not they followed that list of regulations. And so Paul basically says, this guy's playing with shadows. He's, he's playing with things that are, that are good and that were right for the time that they were intended for, but their ultimate purpose was to point to Christ. So anytime that we imply that, that through the completion of certain tasks, we can somehow be on the inside with God, we're actually treading on dangerous territory. So let's, let's expand this um, beyond Jewish actions to simple religious actions uh, that, that might be more relevant to what we um, experience or can understand today. So... Um, there are certain groups that might say, like, what's important is what we wear on Sunday. So um, so you go to certain churches where everybody wears suit and tie, or everybody, uh, where all the women wear dresses, or that sort of thing, like, that, um, that, and that if you don't do that, then you will be ignored, that you will be excluded for some reason, that you actually show yourself to not be included. So there's that, um, maybe it's, uh, you're a part of a group that performs the sacraments, like what? what the level of inclusion is, is that you actually perform the sacraments, that you take communion, that you uh, cross all your T's and dot all your I's in, in terms of those things. Uh, maybe, maybe what's important is uh, how you handle alcohol. Like there are, so th- that's something important to consider, right? And everybody has, has to use wisdom in how they approach that discussion. But there are certain Christian groups that will draw clear lines about in and out on the question... About how you handle alcohol. Um, maybe, uh, maybe this is certain, uh, this is especially true in mainline denominations. Maybe there's a question of what you do with uh, social justice involvement. Like, if you, uh, maybe you, you have to be all about social justice all the time. And, and social justice is really important for the Christian, but it's something that we're called to use wisdom in, and it's not something we draw a law uh, a- around. There are things, maybe there are things that we, we shouldn't watch or read, and then we identify people based on, on those th- things. And these are all, like, hear me, I'm not saying that uh, all of those things are important. All of those things have a, a, a place in the decision-making sphere of a Christian. But whenever any one of them gets emphasized as a law of inclusion, what it does is it creates a, an artificial standard of performance that Jesus doesn't put forward. Because Jesus' only law of inclusion is faith. That's Jesus' law of inclusion. That's how he determines who's in his, and who's out, is do you believe in me? Do you believe that I'm the Son of God? So then Paul, he, he, he looks at this first group of people and says, this is, this is Jesus' way of, of determining how people are included. Because, and, and then he looks at a second group of people who are trying to set, again, additional boundaries Uh, around who is a part of the true Christian faith. And so the first group of people talked about outward religious activity, and maybe the the second group of people, what they talked about was my religious experiences. So the way Paul determines who's in and who, or the way these people determine who's in and who's out is based on their religious experiences. Verse 18, "'Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, popped off without reason,' By his sensuous mind, so he says, disqualify. So this actually goes a step further than judge what he what she said earlier, to say that people are actually making assessments about the salvation of others, and this actually this brings us further clarity into what Paul meant earlier when he said judge that, that these people who are who are trying to draw these lines they're actually talking about the salvation of people, and then he says asceticism. So in, in order to find um, why Paul talks about this word, why he uses this. We have to go back to something, so I'm going to pull us back to a few weeks ago um, to, to something that we discussed about mind-body dualism. So mind-body dualism is this, uh, this way of thinking. It was a philosophy that said the physical world is bad and needs to be abandoned, and the world of thought and spirituality is good, and it should be pursued. So, uh, so this mindset would lead people to asceticism, which is basically a lifestyle of extreme discipline. It's a lifestyle of depriving myself of the material world, of food. Of It's a lifestyle of self-discipline. So people would actually like bring harm to their bodies. Uh, They would do whatever it takes to get them to detach from the material world because what it says is that the physical world is bad and needs to be Abandoned. And, and what people did is that they believed that this, this asceticism actually led them to a deeper level of, of spiritual experience. That the more that I could detach myself from the physical world, then I would actually have this, this deeper spiritual experience where I, I might receive visions. I might worship angels, which by the way is not good. Um, but I might do that, that, that they would have this really, really intense spiritual experience because they were detaching themselves from the material world. So, uh, so these folks, for what's important for them, the, the, the line that they drew was, um, you have to, to seek hard after extraordinary spiritual experiences, like this is what it means to be a Christian. So so after you trusted in Jesus, yeah, that's great. But the way that you really confirm your faith is that you have extraordinary spiritual experiences. And if you don't have have those experiences, then you're missing something of the real faith. Don't mind the fact that those, those experiences lead us to worship something other than Jesus, but just focus on the fact that this is what is important that you have these experiences. And Paul says that, that, that apparently there's there's one person here in particular who who is uh, talking about these experiences and Paul says this guy he's ultimately prideful that he that he's puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and then he goes a little bit further to talk about the problem with this way of thinking he says and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God so Paul says that these people who are saying this they, they aren't following Christ they're not holding fast to Jesus. The suggestions that they're making are actually of no benefit to the body. They don't actually do anything to build anybody up. But Christ, on the other hand, like following him has extreme benefit for the body. So this happens, this happens today. There are actually groups of Christians who say that if you do not, in your life, manifest, manifest the gift of tongues, like this, is the, this, is, this is what confirms your faith. Like this is how you show that you are of the true faith that you actually have the Holy Spirit. So like people who don't show the gift of tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues, um, they they say that those people don't have the Holy Spirit. And so uh, so miraculous gifts we say this too that that miraculous gifts come from a people from people who have a special blessing from the Spirit. That there's something special about those people who are bringing uh, those miraculous gifts. That healing comes from people who are really connected. To God, that there's some deeper level of inclusion for these gifts. People rely on the presence of intense experiences in a church, and a church service even, to tell them how valid that church is, to tell them whether or not that church is a, a good church to be a part of. And these things all have their place, again. These things, like, I'm not saying that these things shouldn't or, or don't occur, I, I'm simply saying that they, they, they cannot become primary, they cannot become the most important thing. Uh, that, that having these experiences don't somehow qualify you as particularly in tune with God. So Paul looks at both of these groups, and, and what he's concerned about, he's concerned for the Colossians, and I think his concern is valid. Uh, there's something about us that likes to know what we can achieve. What are the boxes that we need to check? What are the things that we need to do to really show that we're in? These systems have a certain appeal to us. They appeal particularly to our pride, because they show us what it is that what, what, what thing we have to do to show that we are accepted, that we, we are good. So I want to talk about what these people, what they call true faith, versus the law of love, because you have certain people who are trying to set up a law of true faith, and then you have Jesus who talked a lot about something called the law. Of love, Because this, this, this way of thinking that these people are talking about, it's not compatible with the law of love. So Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I loved you, so you love one another. This is what Jesus told to his disciples. This is the new law that he provided. So people who use tasks and experiences to define themselves, what they're going to do is they're going to get their confidence from their tasks and experiences, and they're not going to get their confidence from Christ. Uh, which means that those people will, will then find loopholes because of their tasks and experiences. And this is what the Pharisees did, by the way. They found their, their lists of tasks that they could complete. And then when it actually came to loving people, which was the whole intent of the law in the first place, they, they, they dropped the ball in so many places because they relied simply on their tasks and experiences. So as long as they, the, these people would say, as long as I'm performing, as long as I'm achieving, as long as I'm, I'm seeking hard after these experiences, as long as I'm disciplining myself well, uh, then then I'm good, then I'm taken care of. But people who are defined by Christ, they are guided by the law of love, which means that their their reliance on Christ in various circumstances actually gives them the wisdom to know what the most loving thing to do in each situation is. So, uh, so, so there's no system of regulations that can actually tell us what the most loving thing to do in each situation is because every single situation is different. And that's why Jesus gives us the law of love because the law of love is what gives us the ability to make these decisions using the wisdom from the Holy Spirit in these various circumstances. And then he goes on, verse 20. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Again, the elemental spirits of the world are are the ones that give us this way of thinking. This is the realm that is counter to Christ, that wants to draw people away from Christ. But he's saying, if with Christ you died to those things, as if you were, um, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. So Paul says, you were, at one point, alive in the world. But now, you are dead to those things and alive in Christ. So why, why are you still playing according to the world's rules? Why are you still playing the world's game? Why are you still trying to prove yourself? So Paul, Paul says basically, okay, you want something to define yourself by. Let me, let me provide something uh, for you. He says, you willingly made rebellious decisions against a loving God. You were dead in sin with no hope of a future. This is who you were. This is what defined you. From the beginning, God made his desires for you clear. From the beginning, God lovingly cared for you. And from the beginning, what you did is that you decided that you wanted to have it your own way. And now Jesus, the God of all this existence, he became like you in every way, yet without sin. He allowed himself to be humiliated, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be killed, so that you wouldn't have to to face the punishment for your own rebellion. So that you who were dead in sin could actually come to life. So that you could not just be forgiven, but that God would look at Christ's blood shed for you, upon you, and say that you are not just forgiven, but that you are holy, and you are righteous, and you are blameless. So that you could become an inheritor that God would give to his most beloved son. So that you could get the promise of an experience of a new creation that is unmarred by sin. This is like Paul says, this is what you define yourself by now. This is how you define yourself. So Paul's point is this. What's important... It's not that you check all of these boxes, that you make sure that you're good. What's important is that you died and Christ lives in you. That's what's important. So let's consider from, from the list that we talked about earlier. So uh, if I died and Christ lives in me... Um, then than that list, like what we wear on Sunday, uh, performing the sacraments, what you do with alcohol, all of these things, these are all things that, that are handled differently in different circumstances, depending on your background, depending on what you need to do in, in various places. And so uh, what I wear on Sunday, I might wear this on Sunday, but if I go uh, down to Guatemala, I've been there a few times, and I go to church on Sunday there, I actually, I do have to wear a suit and tie. Like I have to make sure that I look good because that's what's most hospitable to that group of people. So, so the law of love is guiding my thinking now and not just uh, a rigid set of rules. Performing the sacraments. So performing the sacraments don't become a requirement for my salvation now, but they become uh, an opportunity for joy to take place, for, for me to simply reflect on what Christ has done for me, to celebrate his sacrifice and what it has accomplished. It doesn't become a box to check off, but the law of love, love for God, love for my community is guiding me in how I think about that what you do with alcohol. I know uh, various people make various decisions, and, and the, the overall guidance that we're given is we need to let the law of love guide us in how we do this. So this might actually, like, help us to make decisions that, like, when we're with an alcoholic, we wouldn't do anything with alcohol around them because we know that it can cause them to stumble, right? Like, that's something, that is an awareness that we have. And it might even lead some people to say, you know what, I stay away from this stuff because I know what it can do to me. I know what it has done to people around me. And so, so, That that can lead people to make those kinds of decisions. So so you use the law of love to guide you in those various circumstances. Social justice involvement. Well, what it does is it allows us to make good and wise decisions about the kinds of organizations that we partner with, the kinds of people that we choose to invest in. Yes, we love and care for the poor, but it allows us to make wise decisions about just how do we do that to so the, the kinds of things that we do and don't read, the, the, the kinds of things that we do and don't watch. Again, we don't draw hard lines to identify those things, but we allow the law of love to guide us in each of those situations. So there's no... Actually, it would be impossible to develop a set of regulations that could tell you uh, how to use wisdom in each of those various circumstances. There's a multitude of ways. So what's important is not the particular way that I handle each one, but what's really important is that I have died, and now Christ is in me, leading me to make decisions in each of those places. Verse 23 These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So at the outset, they have an appearance of wisdom. At the outset, they can appear to actually be helpful to be good, like well, black and white, especially for people who, who have come from more difficult backgrounds. Uh, I, uh, um, I have uh, friends who have come out of addiction, and they actually, like when they come to Jesus out of addiction, it's really hard for them to see things, or really easy for them to see things in black and white. Like black and white is super duper helpful for them. And, like at the, at the outset, it can have an appearance of wisdom, and it can even be good at the outset. But if you let it keep running its course it can turn into self-made religion or self-righteousness. The sense that by my accomplishment of certain tasks, I am somehow good with God. And they don't actually help to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Because what does the flesh lead to? The flesh leads to death. And people who do these things, who check these boxes, what Paul is saying is that they can still be led to death. So here are some examples of the, of the flesh leading to death that, that these things actually have no power to control, that, that performing these tasks or having these experiences, they have no influence over, over these examples. So, so here's one. Uh, my inner rebellion against God when he calls me to do something that there's no clear written regulation for. So, so I get to say then, Hey, God, I'm off the hook because I already checked my box, right? Uh, maybe my desire to look good when uh, I put others down. That's an example of death. Or to look good when I look better than somebody else. Um, my constant need to prove that I'm right. Uh, that little spark of joy that comes uh, when I know that I look good in the eyes of others. My own sense of superiority, um, my confidence, my dependence upon myself my desire for recognition, my pride in my own spiritual resume. Did you know that you can accomplish every single one of those tasks? And that you could even have certain spiritual experiences and all the things that I just listed could be true of you. That, that the performing of those things, you can fulfill those tasks, you can do all of that, and still, it doesn't result in a changed heart. Because the only solution to those issues does lie in a changed heart. And the only way that a heart is changed is through constant reliance and trust in Jesus alone. Only he actually has the power to bring us from those places of death to life. Only he has the power to destroy every one of those dead things that are inside of us and replace them with love. Okay, so what? So uh, I think my biggest question, and probably the biggest question that a lot of people have is, does this mean that as Christians, we don't change our behavior? Because this is like the hairy question. Like there are the, it's, I, I hear it said often, like the gospel is a narrow road. And that on either, there are two big ditches on either side. One is legalism, which we've been talking about all morning, the, the checking of boxes, the setting of requirements. That's one ditch on one side of the road. The other ditch is uh, licentiousness or, or choosing the, the feeling that, okay, now that I know Jesus, I can kind of just do and live however I want. And those are two big ditches on either side of this narrow road called the gospel. And so does this mean that as Christians, we don't change our behavior? I actually want to present something else to you. It actually means that we're always changing our behavior. So people who are checking boxes don't actually have to change their behavior a whole lot. Once they get the boxes checked and once they get in that consistent pattern, they're okay. But but people who know Christ, people who follow the law of love... They don't have to, it's not about box checking. It's about using the wisdom that the Spirit gives in various situations, which means you might behave differently in one circumstance than you would in a different circumstance because that's what's most loving. It means that, that we're always changing our behavior. So some people, um, I, I, like, I don't want to confuse politics with this, but I'm going to use a couple of words that are used often in politics, liberal and conservative. So, so some people might say that, that insisting that we don't have a, a standard or a set list of regulations might be a little too liberal. Um, but actually, like, if, if Christ has given us the law of love, I would insist that that is actually the more conservative route because it forces you to make decisions in every single circumstance that are consistent with the law of love. And this is not for the sake of us being better or us not necessarily growing closer to God, but this is ultimately for the sake of revealing Jesus in us. So every time that we do one of those things, every time we make a decision that is according to the law of love, you know what it does? It reveals that Christ is actually in us and he's actually doing something to lead us to the places that he wants to work, to the places that he wants to go. And so it doesn't mean that we don't change our behavior. In fact, what it means is that we are always changing our behavior. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for your love for us. Lord, I thank you that apart, apart from you, we would to wrath. Lord, destined to, to pay the price for our own sin. But Lord, you showed such grace to us in Jesus so I pray that you would well up in our hearts love for you and that 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 love would lead us to make decisions in the various circumstances. That it wouldn't be about setting certain rules and regulations for us to follow or even a set of experiences that we have to have, but Lord, that we would in every circumstance apply the law of love. Lord, that we would understand that what's important is that we have died to ourselves. We have died to the world. We have died with Christ. And Christ has now brought us alive and he lives in us. Lord, that is a wondrous truth. So Lord, I pray that we would live according to that. Lord, you are so good to us. Your spirit can, can do this work. And so uh, as, a, as a congregation, as a church, Lord, we right now ask you, Lord, would you work by your spirit to reveal to us, even in the midst of our work days, even in the midst of, of times where, where sometimes our focus can get lost on you, Lord, that you would wake us up, that you would show us in each circumstance what it looks like to apply the law of love. Lord, we're so thankful for the ways that you work, and we trust you to work in this way. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.